second to the last book in the Old Testament, the longest of the minor prophets. And this is a tricky passage. Uh, I won't I won't fudge it. Um, there is some hard stuff to read here. It's confusing. Uh, I'm gonna. I want you to figure out if you know if, if you're if you can feel what's so what feels so off in this passage. What seems to be sort of not the best solution uh, to our problem, and then we'll go from there. Okay. So this is Zechariah chapter 13, beginning in verse one. On that day. There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets in the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, His father and mother who bore him shall say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. But he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, And one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Let me pray for us. Indeed, Lord, you are our God. We are your people. We pray that you would show us Jesus, that you would remind us of the gospel, that you would remind us of the height and length and width and breadth of your love for your sheep, we pray in his mighty name. Amen. Please be seated. Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you um, that next Sunday our discipleship classes will resume. Uh, Our children's discipleship classes will start up again. Our adult discipleship uh, class uh, will uh, will begin. It's a special class, uh, a four-week class on the gospel and racism that uh, I'm going to be leading. uh, Part of what we're hoping to do regularly that we're calling cultural conversations. We did uh, Jesus and homosexuality a while back. And so we're just trying to tackle some hot-button issues that are difficult to talk about. But we need to talk about them. If there's any place on the planet that should be a safe place to talk about hard things, it ought to be the church. And so we're going to talk about uh, the gospel and racism and race and you know, what it means to be a predominantly white church and how do we, how do we engage our community in that way, okay? Um, also want to let you know to pray for Josh Allen. Um, he is heading to El Paso uh, for about 10 months um, on a mission 
uh, that he's going to be participating in there. And so we're going to be uh, just praying for him. We already sort of did commission him earlier in the summer with all the other summer missionaries, but uh, uh, we want to remember Josh. Uh, we're thankful to have uh, Ron back. I think Ron's back. And uh, also did notice the Mirabellas are with us this morning, so we're, we're just calling you out. You know, there's the Mirabellas, missionaries to Japan with MTW who we support, so say hey to them. All right, so this is a, tr- a tricky passage. Uh, there's stuff in here that makes us wince a little bit. It uh, makes us go, oh, yeah. Those prophets, they're fun to read. Um, they, uh, it, it's tricky, right? And it's, this is the kind of stuff that makes you go, I'm going to flip past the prophets and get to, you know, the easy stuff. Where's Psalm 23, right? Give me the Gospels or something that makes me feel better. Um, there's three things in here I want to highlight. Uh, in verse 2, God promises he's going to cut off the name, the names of the idols, right? So he has this zeal that is, people know him truly, not, not a false god, but the true God. And in verse 7, here's what I was alluding to. There's this crazy language about striking the shepherd and scattering the sheep. What kind of solution is that? We're going to talk about that, and then we're going to wrap up by talking about God's purposes, that we would call upon his name at the end of verse 9, and that we would hear God say, these are my people, right? That's what we want to hear. That's, what, that's why we're here, that we would be reminded that God is our God and that we are his people. So let's talk about God's promise to cut off the names of the idols. Uh, he says in verse 1, there's going to be this fountain uh, to cleanse his people from sin and uncleanness. And that he's going to cut off the names of the idols in verse 2. He will remove from the land the prophets and this spirit of uncleanness, right? So um, that sounds harsh. That sounds, you know... Prototypical prophet stuff that um, is bristly, but it's not because think about every campaign season that there is. What does every single politician promise? I, I don't know about you. Every time I tune in, the promise is it, it's inevitable that they'll say something like, "Vote for me." And I will clean house in Richmond, or I will clean house in D.C. And, you know, we're going to get rid of the bums, we're going to drain the swamp, we're going to get rid of corruption, and we're going to have good government, right? Isn't that what every politician promises? And we all go, yeah, and we want to vote for that guy or that woman because they're going to, you know, drain the swamp. They're going to get rid of corruption. They're going to do whatever and then it doesn't happen. <laughs> but here's, here's the thing. When you look at this promise, this is God appealing to something that's deep within each one of us, this appeal for justice and for truth. We want this. You want this. It may sound bristly, but don't, don't buy into the stereotype about, okay, this is something bad and bitter. It's not. It's good and it's true that God says he's going to get rid of sin and uncleanness. He's going to cut off the names of the idols. So God uses this picture of a fountain, right, to cleanse his people from sin, removing the lies among them about who God is, the idolatrous lies, is a way of cleansing our minds and our hearts from all the false ways that we view God. Uh, and so it's this beautiful picture. God's, God's promising purity. He's promising blessing uh, when he gets rid of what's false, when he gets rid of what's true, untrue. Um, because they, the, these false prophets are, are um, 
you know, they're extolling the names of the idols and they're speaking lies in the name of the Lord. In verse 3, the parents of the prophets, these false prophets, are coming to these false prophets saying, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. These false prophets, you know, to borrow a phrase, uh, well, let's just, let's just be clever then. Um, they, they sit on a throne of lies and they smell like beef and cheese, and they're bad, and we have to get rid of them. Uh, so this is God's commitment, he, right? He says, I'm going to remove the source of the lies, and the, that are, that, that's the imposters who are pretending to speak on God's behalf, and he's going to get rid of them, even, um, even uh, enlisting their parents, right? Because in the Old Testament, there was a law. Um, one of the Levitical codes said, look, if somebody... Um, prophesize falsely, they're to be stoned to death. Um, and so there's the, even this capital punishment against speaking lies in the name of the Lord. Uh, these false prophets are going to uh, get to the point where they're going to realize, you know, our jig is up, uh, we've had our day in the sun, and now God is, uh, is, is calling us to account. And so they're going to pretend like they're not prophets. And they're going to say, no, 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 I'm not a, I'm not a I'm not a prophet. I'm not. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm. I'm just a migrant worker. You know, picking. I'm an alien picking tomatoes in the field. I'm a. I'm a slave, right? Uh, I'm a slave that has the evidence of the the taskmaster, the slave master's, you know, whip on my back. Uh, they're willing to go to that extreme so that they're not identified as false prophets. Why is this such a bad thing? Well. Um, in our weekly staff meeting, we, we're reading through the Proverbs right now. We came across Proverbs 19.5 um, a couple of weeks ago. It says, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Again, appealing to that sense of justice in us, how does, how does it feel when somebody has told a lie about you and then that lie gets discovered? Vindication right? Justice, that feels good. Now, how much more should we want justice and vindication when that lie is not at the expense of me or you, but truly at the expense of one who who has never told a lie, in whom there's nothing false, who is the source of what is true itself? He is true. He doesn't just tell the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. How much more when somebody lies against God? What about, what about those lies? Shouldn't we want some kind of reckoning? So the penalty in the Old Testament for false prophets was death. The reason why this is so serious is because to lie about the character of God is to, by default, reinforce an idolatrous idea of God. Something false about him. Something that's untrue. And so... This is why it's so important that any time, you know, somebody pretends to say, all right, look, uh, this is what God's will is for you. This is what God says. You need to make sure that they're opening this book. When anybody, I don't care how many views they've had, how many followers they have. I don't care how many people go to their church. I don't care how many members they have. I don't care how many books they've written. If they're speaking on behalf of God, what they say has to come from the Bible or they're lying. It has to be grounded in this, or they're giving a false idea who God is. 
God has supremely revealed who he is in these words. Everything else is, is below this. This is supreme. Furthermore, when somebody opens this book and they say, okay, let's turn to this chapter and this verse, and they, they, say that they pull this verse out of context and say, well, here, God is like this. You know how many messed up notions have, have, have taken place because some uh, cult leader or, you know, whatever ran away with this verse or this truth and set it out of context? Like, you have to make sure that when somebody is teaching or preaching from this word that they're doing it and understanding it in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That what they're saying is consistent with the kingdom of God. Because it's a dangerous thing to tell a lie about God. To mislead his people. In 2 Timothy 4, it says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers. You know, think of false prophets, whatever. To suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It's a serious thing to stand in this pulpit and declare, this is what God says. James goes on in, verse, in chapter 3, James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I will be judged with greater strictness because I am a preacher. Don't turn your filter off. When you're listening to this teacher or this pastor or this preacher, you know, this message or whatever, make sure they are opening the Bible and make sure that what they are reading is connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is consistent with the kingdom of God. Because we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, this passage where Zechariah is saying God is going to clean house, he's going to open this fountain, he's going to wash away sin and uncleanness, he's going to get rid of the false prophets and the, the idolatrous notions of who God is, his solution to this, his, that's his plan, his, his implementation, the way he's going to accomplish this is the way he's going to deal with these lying prophets is in verse 7 when he says, all right, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, my, and you can parenthetically understand, good shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. That's God's solution. And you and I should both be going, Wait, what? How is, how is striking the good shepherd, how is scattering the sheep, how is that a good solution to deal with false prophets and false teaching and idolatry among God's people? That doesn't seem to make any sense. And so, you know, when you come across passages that are confusing, uh, you probably do what I do. I, I go to somebody who knows a lot more than I do. And I'll, this is the point in which I would probably go and say, okay, uh, Tim Keller, what do you think? Uh, John Piper, what do you think? Uh, C.S. Lewis, what do you think? And I would have a nice quote for you right here, but I can do better than that. This is a confusing place. The solution doesn't seem to match the problem. And yet we have one who has supreme authority who can lead us and who can interpret Zechariah 13 for us. 
Remember that Zechariah is one of the most quoted prophets in the New Testament, certainly in the Gospels. And you have, so you have Paul quoting Zechariah, you have the Gospel writers quoting Zechariah, you have Jesus himself quoting Zechariah. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a little bit. This was instituted in the upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And after taking the supper on their way to Gethsemane, listen to Jesus. He says, you will all fall away because of me on this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Right, Peter, you can rely on him to be a bit bombastic. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter insisted. He said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. They all said the same thing. So, okay, how did Jesus interpret Zechariah? What was the point of striking the good shepherd? Jesus had been telling the disciples for months now, right, Uh, ever since he said, look, we are heading to Jerusalem. And when I get there, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to mistreat him. They're going to beat him. They're going to crucify him. And then I'm going to raise. And the disciples just kind of keep having this glazed look over their eyes. They don't get it. For months it's been like this. Again and again telling them that he would suffer in Jerusalem. And even to the end, the disciples don't get it. This notion that Jesus, their hero, would have to suffer, that he would lose, that he would be defeated, did not align with their false view of who God was. Their God, this idolatrous view of God, was the God who always gives us the victory, who always, you know, is, is making life better. He's going to uh, he's going to rout our enemies. He's going to, you know, be on our side. He's going to be on our team. He's in our back pocket. We can do all, you know, this stuff. And I know it sort of sounds like that's what he promised, but they have a totally warped view of how he's going to accomplish his purposes. They've got to be corrected. They've got to get these lies, the worldly lies about how we tend to make God in our image Instead of how God is making us in his image, Jesus is committed to getting rid of that stuff. So what was the point? The point of of Zechariah 13 is when you get down to verse 9, this whole point is that we know who God truly is. That he would know us. These are my people. That we would know him. This is our God. And how can we get to know the true God? Well, we're given a a glimpse of that in verses 8 and 9. Because the imagery goes, shifts from a fountain that's going to cleanse to a crucible that's going to refine. And the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be cut off, one-third will be left alive, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. We don't like trials. And I am allergic to suffering. But this is exactly what God is promising to his people. We will be refined. We will go through this crucible and the heat is going to be intense and the discomfort is going to be disoriented to us, disorienting to us. And God's got to remind us to welcome these trials, these refinings 
to welcome them even joyfully. That's why James says, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So why in the world would anyone count a crucible a joyful experience? Well, the only reason that we can ever imagine is not to count the experience joyful, but the result joyful. Because it's going to refine us. It's going to make us perfect and complete. So trials and tests and crucibles that refine our faith feel so bad, they feel like death to us because truly God is killing something. He's putting to death our false notion of who God is. When we suffer, when we go through all these trials, God is attacking the biggest idol in our heart, and it's the God of comfort. It's the Western North American God of comfort. That God owes me comfort. He owes me an easy life. He owes me a life free of struggle and trial. He's on my team. He's for my dreams. He's for my stuff. And over and over and over it goes. And God says, no, I'm not. That's not the God of the Bible. God sits on high, and we are made in his image, not vice versa. And we are supposed to be on his side for his kingdom. He doesn't exist for my, my team and my kingdom. So what generally happens to me, I don't know if this is true for you, but, you know, I end up thinking that God's going to just go along and bless whatever I'm putting my hand to. He's going to think like me. He's going to act like me. He's going to go where I go. He's going to vote like I vote. He's going to vote for me, really. But at the end of the day, that's what I want. I want God to just vote for me, just endorse everything I do and bless it. That would be great. That's what I want. And then he doesn't. And then I go, oh, no. And trials come and hardship comes uh, because that God that I was believing in was, was a lie. It's not the God of the Bible. And God lovingly sends me into a crucible. He sends you and me, all of us, trials along the way to rip from our hands this false view of who God is, this lie that says God's, God owes me a comfortable life. The Bible says that when God sends us trials, he's doing it for our good. I know it hurts and it feels like death, but he has to get rid of this false notion of who God is. This, it's easy to be kind of this uh, fair-weather Christian where I'll believe in God, I'll praise him as long as everything's going great. And then when the, the roof falls in or when things start to fall apart, relationships break down and you, know, you lose your job, you lose your friends, you know, things get very, very difficult. You don't understand why. We start to think things like this. God is punishing me. We start to think God is against me. We start to think God has left me. Or we get angry at God. We think God owes me. We think God is withholding from me. That God is failing me. Right? And that's sort of where our flesh goes. I think we all wrestle with this. But that's not God. That's not God. Suffering you know, starts to reveal what we really believe about God. Suffering doesn't change our theology. It just starts to expose what we really believe, what we're struggling with. And so when you suffer discomfort, when I suffer discomfort, when we suffer hunger or thirst or 
cold or heat or whatever it is physically, sickness can be included in this too. When we're uncomfortable, what do we believe about God? Are we believing the truth about God or a lie? And when we suffer discrimination, right? Half of you are women. When you feel that you're being put down because of your gender, um, maybe you're don't, you don't have as much money as somebody. You feel like the rich people get preferential treatment. Or maybe you're a minority. And we're going to talk about that, of course, in the uh, adult discipleship class. Uh, when you suffer injustice, what do you believe about God? Are you believing the truth about God or a lie about God? When you suffer false accusations, certainly, you know, we get false accusations from enemies. You sort of expect that. But what about from friends and from family members? When it really hurts, what do you believe about God? The truth or a lie? And you can go down the list. You know, what do you believe about God when you suffer temptations, when you suffer rejection, when you suffer betrayal? This passage warns us, right, against falling away. Don't be like those who fall away through that trial. And Jesus picked this whole theme up in the parable of the soils, right? The seed falls along the the path and the rocks and the, the weeds, and then there's good soil. You know, the rocks, the, the seed that fell among the rocks, it, it sprout roots really quick, but they couldn't go deep. Uh, and then the sun came, the trials came, and the, the new plant withered. So instead, believe the truth about God as we, as we go through these trials. God, God is intending to purify our faith. He's trying to do something beautiful in you and in me. I found this... I found this rock. I thought it was a rock. Um, I, I don't remember what beach we were at, um, but this was on the beach, and we like looking for sea glass and shells and all that stuff when we were ever at the shore. And I thought this was a rock, but then I picked it up, and, it, and it, it's metal. Uh, and I don't, I've had it for a long time, and I don't remember where I got it, and I've never had it tested, but it's, it's some kind of silverish metal, and uh, maybe it's silver. It's probably aluminum. But anyway, I like to think it's silver. Uh, but it, it somehow it's been melted, and it's, a, and it's sort of like a nugget, uh, and it washed up on the, on the shore. Um, and so there's probably a bunch of stuff mixed into this, like dross, you know, stuff that isn't pure. If it's, let's, imagine, let's pretend like it's silver. So the silversmith's job, right, is to heat this up, uh, burn off the dross so that the silver is pure. If you buy something that's silver, you don't want corrupt metal. You expect to get pure silver. Um, This is the serving spoon from my Nan's silver set that she gave to me. Um, And she passed away about two years ago. Uh, So this is what happens when a silversmith takes this nugget, applies heat, intense heat, and applies pressure to the extent that it feels like hammer blows. And with enough heat and enough pressure, you get something like this that's, that's actually beautiful and useful. And, it's, and, it, and it gets to be this polish. It has such a shine in it that I can actually see my reflection in the silver. My face is in there. Your face is in there. And when God's sending us trials, when he's sending us through the crucible, and when he's refining us, his purpose is to be able to see his face, his reflection in me and in you. He wants us to take after him. 
He's forming us in his image. He wants to see his face in us, and he wants the world to see his face in us. And that is only going to happen as he removes the, the lies, the false notions of who God is, and shows us through the gospel the truth about who we are. In Psalm 66, he says, Bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us and you have tried us as silver is tried. We asked the question earlier, what's the point? Why would God do this? Why would he strike the shepherd? Why would he scatter the sheep? What is the point? In verse 9, the second half, we see the point, that they would call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people And they will say, the Lord is my God. Do you want to know the true God? Not the fluffy God, not the cushiony God, not the comfortable God, not the idolatrous God that a lot of Western people are worshiping. Do we want to know the true God? What is it worth to you? What, What are you willing to endure to know him truly as he is? And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. Do you know how we know the really true God? Not so much by looking at our suffering and what we're going to gain through that, but by looking at Jesus' suffering. Because the really important question isn't so much what are we willing to go through in order to know God as he truly is, but the most important question is what was God willing to go through in order for us to know him as he truly is. Jesus endured suffering, discomfort to be sure, right? Hunger, thirst, cold, heat, you name it. By virtue of becoming human in our flesh, he experienced our discomfort. And he suffered discrimination, right? He suffered discrimination from the Romans because he was Jewish. He suffered discrimination from the Jews because he was from Nazareth. He got it on both sides. He knows what injustice feels like. He suffered false accusations, certainly from his enemies, but from his friends and even from his family. And he suffered temptation. He was tempted in every way, Hebrews tells us, and yet he never gave in. He never capitulated. And he was holy to the end. He suffered rejection. He suffered betrayal. He even suffered crucifixion. That's what God was willing to endure for us to know him. That's the true God. The God who suffers with us. When we suffer, when we're in trials and temptations, we are, as Paul says, filling up in our flesh what is lacking with regard to Christ's affliction. So when you suffer, when I suffer, the only way to give thanks in those circumstances, as James says, is to say, you know what, I am participating in what Jesus suffered. This is a reminder to me of how much God loves me, that he would suffer this for me. And it transforms how you suffer it actually makes it a place, a holy place where you can meet with God. So Jesus suffered all of this and more. And we're told that when he was on the cross after he died, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. 
For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. The Scripture that DJ was unpacking last week, again from Zechariah chapter 12. They will look upon Him who they have pierced. They crucified Jesus as if He were a false prophet. Because the world couldn't recognize the truth. The truth about a God who would give his life to forgive the sins of all who trust in him. And who would come and take on our flesh, our frailty, our humanity, and love us and be with us like that. Blood and water flowed from the pure side of Jesus become, to become a fountain, right? To cleanse us. The blood cleanses us from our sins. The, the water is this picture of, of newness of life, abundant life, a, a source of water, a well that's bubbling up within us to give us fullness through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus washes away our sins and he washes away our false views of who God is so that the true God, who is unlike any false God, would reveal himself to us in the person of Jesus so that we can say, the Lord, the true God, is my God. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would continue your work of revealing your character to us, that you would show us more and more of your truth, that you would expose our, our false views of God, the lies that we've, we've bought into. Um, and Lord, would you forgive us for the lies we've even perpetuated uh, when, we, when we don't suffer well and when we blame you and when we complain. Lord, would you get glory as uh, you shine your reflection in us? Would you help us to count it all joy when we face these kinds of trials? When we, would you help us to believe that you have a purpose to remove the dross of our unbelief from us and to give us a pure and mature faith? We pray for those who have maybe not yet put their faith in Jesus, that they would see in him a God unlike any other who would suffer for us and would give his life for our sins, that we would be forgiven and justified, adopted, and sanctified. Help them put their faith in you today, we pray. Help all of us continue to put our faith in you. And would you grow our church? Would you grow us in our, in, in our maturity? Would you grow us in our number? Thank you for new members. Um, thank you for the ways that you're growing uh, individuals and households who are...